Hello and welcome to Climate Change on Trial. I'm Anne McElhenney. And I'm Fela McAleer. And this is a daily podcast from inside the DC defamation trial of writer and broadcaster Mark Stein. Stein is being sued for defamation by climate scientist Professor Michael Mann. Stein described Mann's famous hockey stick graph as a fraud. Mann, who was a professor at Penn State and who is now a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, is also suing writer Rand Simberg, who made similar comments. Now, we're presenting this podcast in a very special way by having actors reenact verbatim from the transcripts the most exciting exchanges in court each day. So, welcome to Climate Change on Trial, Day 4. Michael Mann, vomit, excuse me while I puke. So we're going to do today's podcast in a kind of reverse because the afternoon saw Mark Stein, the defendant, take the witness stand for the first time. He's representing himself uh, and, of course, he gave that blistering opening statement on Friday and he has actually cross-examined a witness, but this was the first time he was questioned in court under oath and it was... As amusing and uh, combative as you would think, Anne, wasn't it? Yeah, and it, it was also quite um, uh, something to, to behold because Mark had to take the stand, as it were, and obviously he isn't able to stand. He's in a wheelchair, so, um, you know, there was a whole um, situation getting him into the into the stand during the break, um, and I think it took it really winded him for a while, so he had a bit of time to, to get himself together before the jury came in. But um, but he was in flying form. I mean, you know, it, it, despite that, he was in absolutely flying form, and it and it and that hit off almost from the get go yes. because um, you know the jury came in and then he was sworn in. Mark was sworn in, you know, and um, the, I swear, the lady, to Mighty God, you know. The, yeah. Well, the, the the lady who gave the oath, you know, she gave the oath, which doesn't include anything in reference to God, by the way. Interestingly enough, here in Washington D.C. Oh, so when she, when he repeated it back, he repeated the words, you know, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Uh, that's what she said to him. And then he said back to her, well, I swear to, you know, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, but n- and nothing but the truth. So help me God. Yes. And I thought, good for you, Mark. Get it in there, you know. <laughs> Standards are failing, you know, very if you don't mention God. Very but very theatrical. theatrical. Yeah, so he was questioned by Michael Mann's lead counsel, John Williams, um, who I felt at times was suppressing a smirk at some of Stein's responses. It's probably a good sign that you're making uh, your opponent's counsel laugh a little bit or smile a little bit. I, I don't know if the jokes landed with the jury. We'll, we'll find that out in a couple of weeks' time. We're going to listen to a little bit of the back and forth because it, it, it's, it's, I mean, it's all, it's all wonderful. But I think the first one that we're going to go to here, um, and obviously, we, we, you know, we literally can't do the whole thing, but we, we're, we're taking... We're doing, we're, we're doing a lot. And what we're doing is giving you the highlights of the day. And so I think we really felt that this particular exchange was great where um, because of the effectiveness of Mark's criticism of Michael Mann, because Michael Mann, you know, stolen valor, has been calling himself a Nobel Prize winner, despite the fact that he's not a Nobel Prize winner. I think Williams needed to try to, you know, win some points with the jury yeah. on that one, because I think that one had landed very well with oh. the jury, because I think they thought that, that, thought, thought that that was, like the rest of us, by the way, thought that that's an incredibly appalling thing to do. You know, pretending that you were in Vietnam, you know, or whatever, or pretending that you're the same as Marie Curie. No, you're not, by the way. You're one of thousands and thousands of people in the IPCC. It's, well, no, yeah, I mean... It was one of the parts of Mark's opening that really, really landed with the jury, I felt. And it's, it's, it's about Michael Mann falsely claiming to be a Nobel Prize winner. Now, the IPCC, which is, you know, something like 3,000, 5,000 scientists, they won, they shared the Nobel Peace Prize 
But Michael Mann then went around claiming to have won a Nobel Peace Prize. And in fact, he claimed to have won it in legal documents submitted to the court. In his very first complaint, he claimed it on three occasions. He then had to withdraw that complaint. As Mark Stein said in his opening, he's the only scientist in history where the Nobel Committee, the head of the Nobel Committee, has had to issue a statement saying, this man did not win a Nobel Prize. So it was a bitter blow for Williams to try and get over that from the opening. So he tried to parse it with Mark Stein. Let's hear what how Mark Stein handled that and how Michael Mann's counsel handled that. And just a reminder, this is reenacted testimony uh, from the transcripts. These are actors playing Mark Stein and John Williams. And you may hear the judge intervene. And uh, let's go to that reenactment now. You said you were looking forward to the lawsuit, correct? That's before I knew it would take 12 years. If I could do a back to the future thing, go back in time. Mr. Stein, please answer the question. I did answer the question. Let's talk about the Nobel Prize. You mentioned that a number of times, right? Correct. And the initial complaint in this action referred to Dr. Mann as a Nobel Prize recipient, correct? Three times in that initial statement of claim. And when you had critiqued Dr. Mann and his lawyers for this mistake, were you aware of the underlying fact as to why that statement was made? If you're saying he was one of thousands upon thousands who contributed to the International Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, just as a half a billion citizens of the European Union presumably contributed to the European Union's winning of the Nobel Peace Prize, so that anybody on the nude beach of Saint-Tropez can claim to be a Nobel Prize recipient, then yes, I was aware of the underlying background. Thank you for that. Were you aware of a certificate received by Dr. Mann and the other scientists who other scientists who contributed to the IPCC work? The certificate ran off at the IPCC branch of Kinko's, as he well knows. Wherever it was run off. You don't know where it was run off, do you? I'm aware. You don't know where it was run off, do you? Do I know who mans the IPCC photocopier? No. Thank you. Now, you were aware of the fact that Dr. Mann and the other scientists actually received a certificate from the IPCC noting their contributions to the Nobel Prize, yes or no? That is, I recall the statement by Dr. Rajendra K. Pachuri, the head of the IPCC. Was it a yes or no question? Were you aware of the fact that Dr. Mann, along with the other contributors to the IPCC work, received a certificate from the IPCC recognizing their work on the Nobel Prize. Did you know that before you made all the statements? That's yes or no. Then you can talk about the doctors if you warrant. Did I know he had a certificate from the photocopier? Yes, I did. So, you know, I, I thought that was pretty effective. I thought, I, thought, I thought Williams was thinking he was going to land some good blows there on the Nobel Prize story, and he didn't. It he didn't. didn't really work well, and it allowed, actually, Mark, actually, to even further emphasize the issues of the, you know, the Kinkos at the IPCC. And, and the nude beach in Saint-Tropez. I love the new, nude beach in Saint-Tropez. So, yeah, it just allowed Mark to show the ludicrous nature of Michael Mann's stolen valour uh, and, and the seriousness of it, and... 
the cheapness of it. So I don't think, I think Williams tried to salvage the situation. I don't th- think it succeeded. And by the way, you know, we're with the jury here who are getting to listen to a lot of people um, spill the beans about their fantastic credentials. And I'll talk a little bit more about one of the other witnesses later. But, you know, th- th- this is a courtroom where people are constantly telling you about all the prizes they've won and about all the fantastic universities they've attended and prizes they've won. And mm. I don't know, and all the, yes, you know, and true. all these PhDs they've gotten and all honorary doctorates, all kinds of stuff. So, you know, the idea that Michael Mann wouldn't understand the significance of being a Nobel Peace Prize winner as opposed to being somebody who is not a Nobel Peace Prize winner. Um, you know, exactly. it, it's, it's, hard, it's, it's a stretch and I think that I think the jury did not get that one. So well, exa- exactly. I mean, later on in the, in the podcast, we'll hear how they make a big fuss out of peer review. And, and of course, peer review is reviewed by your peer, as you say, by people with all these degrees. And they make a big thing about... Um, papers being cited and papers in the right magazines and the right periodicals. So they understand what it is to to fake your qualifications, to fake uh, other aspects of your career. So Williams did not succeed in that. No, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So then the next bit we want to bring your attention to was, you know, Williams, which I thought was an interesting tack. He, rather than focus on the original offending article, by Stein in National Review. Williams decided he was going to ask Stein about his combative... Opening statement, yes. yeah, exactly, which he said, I've got a copy of it here, I hope you've got a copy of it there, and he wanted to go through that. Yeah. Which is an interesting... I mean, Stein is there... Stein has been sued about the original 210-word post in National Review, not about his opening statement, but Williams decided to go there. Um, they had a rather... Uh, and, and Stein... Rather, I thought rather gallantly assisted Williams, uh, John Williams, in pronouncing the, n- the name of a, an obscure Canadian region and even helped the court reporter spelling it. Um, uh, let's listen to that little exchange. Let's come back to your opening statement. Do you have a transcript? Have you seen your opening statement? No. I believe you said that the hockey stick relies, quote, for its estimate of the global temperature of the early 15th century on just one tree from the Gasp Peninsula in Quebec. Does that sound familiar? How do you spell that? The Gaspé with an accent on the last, on the E. Okay. Do you recall saying the hockey stick relies for the estimate of the global temperature of the early 15th century on just one tree from the Gaspé Peninsula in Quebec? Yes, I did say that. You were stating that as a fact, were you not? I think, uh... I think what I probably should have said. Stating it as a fact? Yes, I would say that. Thank you. Now, when you made that statement, you were not under oath, were you? For the opening statement? Correct. No, I don't think I took an oath. Now that you were under oath, would you make that same assertion again? Well, I would clarify it, I think. I think what I I should have put in is that it's only for the particular year I was talking about. For several years in the mid-15th century, there are some bristle cones from Western North America, which is an unreliable proxy, which scientists agree, and that for some of those years in the mid-15th century, there are, there is one reliable tree from the Gaspé, and for other years there were two. For the years 1400 to 1404, there were no trees. That was a bit of a word salad to me, Mr. Stein. I'll ask the question again. Now that you're under oath, this is a yes or no question. Uh Uh-huh. 
Would you make the same statement that the hockey stick relies on its estimate of the global temperature of the 15th century on just one tree? Not for the entire 15th century. I thought I'd said for the early and mid 15th century. I'll rephrase it. Let's stay with me, please. Now that you are under oath, would you say that the hockey stick relies on its estimate for the global temperature of the early 15th century on just one tree? Just one reliable tree. So just one tree would be false, right? That would not be correct. Objection. Mr. Stein, may we understand from what you just said that there are some things you would say while under oath, but not while you were not under oath. Objection, argumentative. Objection is overruled. I'll rephrase the question, Mr. Stein. Are there some things you will say while under oath, but not when you are not under oath? No. Yeah, I'm not sure if either side uh, scored massively in that exchange, but I suppose the existence of doubt aids Stein because it shows that there's a debate and a question about the hockey stick and so a need for questioning. Yes, yes. So then Mann's lawyer, Williams, asked Stein about Climategate, where damaging emails about Mann were leaked and tried to get Stein to name um, the identity of the whistleblower who leaked the emails. This is, I, I, I enjoyed this. I thought this whistleblower thing was good and I thought people would appreciate it, particularly because people do know and it's, it's, there's obviously a tradition um, in this country as well uh, of, of whistleblowers and courageous whistleblowers and how, you know, they have done so much good actually in the world. Um, and uh, certainly Williams was trying to say there wasn't a whistleblower, that this was some kind of illegal hack done by people in obscure countries across the world. And, and also, he's trying to get someone... Everyone knows you don't name a whistleblower because the reason they're a whistleblower is because they fear retaliation. You know, the reason it's called a whistleblower, they're not named, right, because they fear retaliation. And also, journalists don't... Do you ever hear the word, you know, has he seen Watergate? You know, journalists don't reveal their sources. Yeah, I thought he'd say that, by the way. Yes, I thought, he, I, I thought Mark would say that, but let's well, hear... Well, what he did say, though, which I thought was very good, was he said, you know, and I think then they tried to strike that from the record, but he yes. basically was saying, you know, given Michael Mann's penchant for... Punitive. Punitive, punitively, you know, attacking people who say nasty things about him or say anything about him critical, you know, I'm of course I'm not going to name names because I wouldn't want to bring down this um, storm of nastiness on anybody else, you know. So uh, yeah. anyway, this is, let's... Um, let's go to that reenactment now. Thank you. So let me ask something else about what you said in your opening statement about Climate Gate. And you made the statement that I was misstating what I said, that there had been a hack into the servers. Do you remember that? Correct. You said I was misstating, right? Yes. And then you said that what had really happened was that it was a leak by a courageous whistleblower who wanted to expose the hockey stick shenanigans. Do you remember that? Correct. And when you said that, were you aware that this entire incident had been investigated by law enforcement in Norfolk where the incident had occurred? I'm aware that the University of East Anglia is located in Norfolk. My question was different. Were you aware that this had been investigated by the Norfolk Constabulary, a law enforcement agency in Great Britain? I was aware that there had been a desultory police investigation. And what did that desultory investigation determine? I could not recall. Do you recall that the investigation determined that it had been an external hack by the internet from a number of different IP addresses in various countries? I'm not sure I could recall that. Did you take any time to look at that before you told the jury that this was a leak by a courageous whistleblower? I happen to know the name of the whistleblower. Why don't you tell us? 
I'm not going to release that name because you well know how punitive your client is for those who cross him. Objection. Objection sustained. Members of the jury, you'll disregard Mr. Stein's response to the question. Would you ask the question again, Mr. Williams, if it's relevant? You also said that the whistleblower was generally known on the inside. Do you remember that? And I believe that is the case. The inside of what? The inside of the Climatic Research Unit at East Anglia. I see. And who told you that this was a leak by a courageous whistleblower? Well, I will say that I... This is going back 15 years now, which is when Climate Gate broke. And there was speculation at the time, and there has been speculation since. But my conversations with various people who follow the climate debate always wind up coalescing around the one name. You won't share the one name? I don't believe. This is the United States. I've been in litigation in this courthouse. Yes or no? No, I won't release the name of the alleged whistleblower. So then Williams asked Stein uh, about what, what Stein... Again, he's, he's going back to the opening statement, Stein's opening statement. I'm not sure it's a great road to take, but Stein said in his opening statement, Rand Simberg was right, right? And uh, remember, Rand Simberg is the person who originally wrote the article that Mark was responding to. So Rand Simberg wrote another scandal in Unhappy Valley, and that is about uh, the Jerry Sandusky case. And actually, the Jerry Sandusky cover-up, the cover-up, uh, the fake investigation into Jerry Sandusky, the Penn State coach who abused children. And he was saying... They did a fake investigation into child rape. Surely we should look again at their investigation into Michael Mann and his climate gate, uh, apparently unethical emails and unethical scientific method. And uh, Mark Stein responded to that with a 210-word blog post. Um, so then, really, that brought this brought Williams and Stein to war once again about whether or not the Penn State investigation into Michael Mann and Climate Gate, and whether Mann was involved in unethical behaviour, whether it was rigorous or not. So let's go to that reenactment. Let's talk about, quote, Rand was right, unquote. After Miss Weatherford, Rand Simberg's counsel, said it, you gave your opening statement, and on two or three occasions you said Rand was right. Do you remember that? Yes, I thought it was a great line. We'll see how great it was, and how truthful it was, okay? Yes, go ahead. When you told the jury that Rand was right, were you aware that Mr. Simberg, in his deposition, admitted that he had made a number of errors about what he wrote? No. Let's look at what Mr. Simberg actually wrote. Can we show the article? Let's look at page two. The Other Scandal in Unhappy Valley. You read this article, did you not? Of course you did, before you wrote your article. Yes, I quoted it in Football and Hockey. We'll get to that. Let's look at page two. Do you see down in the middle of the page where it says, despite the fact that it was completely internal to Penn State, and they didn't bother to interview anyone except Mann himself? Do you see that? Yes. Mr. Simberg is saying there that Penn State did not bother to interview anybody other than Mike Mann, right? Yes. And in fact, Penn State interviewed at least six other scientists, didn't they? They did interview other people, that is correct. Okay and including Dr. Richard Lindzen, correct? My understanding is that that is not correct. They spoke to him. As I said, I'm not entirely sure what you're asking here, Councillor. 
I know, for example, that Mr. Steve McIntyre, my fellow Torontonian, offered his sources and offered his evidence and had some back and forth with them. And I know that Dick Linson said Let's he had... Let's come back to Dr. Linson. I asked you if Penn State had interviewed Dr. Linson, correct? That was my question. Do you recall that? Yes. And you said you don't know if they, if he was interviewed, that they might have had a discussion, right? Yes. I recall Dr. Linson complaining about his contact with the Penn State investigation. At what level that contact with the Penn State investigation was conducted, I would have to refresh my memory. Is there a difference in your mind between an interview and a discussion? There are different levels. You just distinguish between me talking under oath and me talking not under oath. You yourself have accepted there are different levels of engagement with the process. He said the Penn State seemingly ignored the emails. Do you see that? Yes. That's not right either, is it? I think it's largely right. What does largely right mean? Well, they came up with four areas they wished to investigate in this. Just talking about the email, sir. Four areas. They disregarded three of them initially, said there was no case to answer. As we'd say elsewhere in the common law world, there is no case to answer. And that left just the fourth question. So I would really say I think it's correct to say they ignored the content of the emails. So that was the end of Mark's evidence for the day. He came pretty late to the stand, but also... I mean, what what you don't capture there is there was objection after objection after objection. Yeah, it's good for actually it's good for you guys to get to hear, um, you know, what it's like to be in the court. So there's this constant, constant objections. And when these objections are, you know, when somebody shouts objection, they immediately put on a white noise, which is like static on your television. You know, when you can't get a good television channel going um, and you have that awful noise. Well, that's what we get to hear. And we get to hear it repeatedly. Us, by the way, and the jury get to hear that while the counsel and the judge, you know, converse about whatever particular objection there is. So we get to hear the white noise and then eventually the white noise is turned off and then the judge will either say objection was overruled or was sustained. sustained. I mean, there's been a lot of objections and this is a case, as as Mark said, that has taken 12 years to get to court. It's moving pretty slowly. Although Mark Stein was on on the stand today, so hopefully that's and, a good And he thing. will be, t- as you say, and he will be tomorrow. Yeah, so... Uh, so other people that we heard today... Um, uh, well, when I say tomorrow, we're recording this on Monday. Yeah, so it'll be tomorrow. By the time you're hearing this, it'll be Tuesday. He'll be on He'll be on the stand still. So if you're in the D.C. area, pop down Superior Court in D.C. and uh, be sure and say hello. So then, uh, early in the, earlier in the day, we heard uh, testimony from Dr. Raymond Bradley. Yeah, uh, and he, he had been hangover from Friday, so we'd heard him start on Friday, and then this is getting to hear the end of him. And I have to say, he's, Friday was yeah. challenging uh, to listen to to Dr. Bradley, who who gave us a lot of photographs from all of his lovely travels across the world, picking up samples of uh, tree rings and ice cores. Dr. Bradley is, is a co-author of The Hockey Stick. Uh, you know, he co-wrote the paper with Michael Mann, um, the, the, the infamous or famous hockey sticks, uh, the, the two hockey stick graphs, actually, the paper from 99 and 98. And uh, he's closely worked, worked closely with Mann for decades. And he's now a professor at the University of Massachusetts, Amherst. So they, today it got a bit more interesting, I would say, 
Uh, not, I wouldn't call it grippy now. I suppose. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because it was sort of personal. Some personal stuff came up and we found out that Bradley met Michael Mann's father mm-hmm. at a wine tasting. So Michael Mann's father is also a scientist. or, or Yeah, he's a scientist and a, and yes. a professor at a university. And I yeah. can't remember which one now. But they met anyway, having the little meat, neat meat, a cute meat at a yes, wine sir. tasting, who then Michael Mann's father told... Um, told Bradley, told Dr. Bradley that he had this son who was studying climatology at Yale. Um, and then they, they all wound, wound up having coffee. And shortly after that, Bradley became man's postdoctoral advisor at yes. the University of Massachusetts. Yeah. So the meat of Bradley's testimony today, you know, concerned the science behind the hockey stick graph. Um, so he explained, he told the jury about how the data was pulled from ice cores, tree rings, corals, historical documents, you know, all the all the different sources that they used. Um, and they said they didn't collect the data themselves. Uh, they drew it mostly from established databases. Uh, they said the, He said they in, independently verified the methods of these databases. Just a reminder, the hockey stick says temperature was basically flat for a thousand years, took a sharp rise in the 1800s when industrialization and CO2 emissions increased. So it's a it's the combustion it, engine basically that when the combustion engines you know was was invented and we started using fossil fuels to make life gorgeous, uh, everything went to hell. So it's 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 used by people who say we need to stop CO2 emissions uh, as an example of how the climate has been seriously affected by that. So, uh, but what's really interesting is that Bradley said you know that while that man had little to do with gathering the data. He had everything to do with processing it. And I thought that was interesting because this actually supports Simberg's and Stein's articles. I don't know why they made such a fuss with Bradley saying it because I think it was Simberg said, man, their, their whole argument, Simberg and Stein, is that man molested and tortured the data that went into the graph, that he fixed the statistics to make it look like a hockey stick. Um, you know, so this defamation case does not rest on whether a certain three ring or ice core data can tell us the temperature. Probably can't, but hey, we're not scientists. You know, I don't think I don't think three ring data can tell you the temperature in Ethiopia in eleven seventy four. But hey, what do I know? Um, it's almost beside the point. Uh, they said man was the sole author who processed the data. So and he then created the graph. So let's hear the exchange. As as I say, it's reenacted by actors. Man's lawyer Patrick Coyne is asking the questions of Bradley. Let's back up to statistics. Who did the work on the statistics? Mike Mann, Professor Mann. Can you please, so the assumptions that went into the statistics, who came up with those assumptions? That was all Dr. Mann. Next step, calibration. Who did the work on the calibration portions for MBH 98 and 99? I'm recalling that was also Dr. Mann. Dr. Mann. The next step is validation. Who did the work on the validation? Also Dr. Mann. The next step is reconstruction. Who did the work on the reconstruction step? The reconstruction is the product of those previous three steps. That would also be Dr. Mann. It's hard to underestimate how influential the hockey stick graph was, you know. According to Bradley, it's been cited every three days for 25 years, you know. It made, it made superstars out of them, actually. Yeah, 
they definitely became superstars. And Bradley recalled a moment where he was at a conference in London. By the way, almost every second sentence from people like Bradley is that he was a conference here or he was collecting tree ring data in Bermuda and all kinds of gorgeous it's places. It's a lovely life. <laughs> he certainly is travelling a lot um, and has uh, plenty of air miles. But Bradley, anyway, recalled that he was in London at a conference and he was whisked away uh, to a TV studio. In fact, he named the TV studio, it was ITN, um, to, to answer, you know, to, to talk about the, um, the hockey stick. But he was all delighted about that. So it was great. So, yes, and I think he did go on to talk about how huge this was and how it got mo- the most cited piece of science yes. that he was ever involved oh, with. Oh, it made them, made them stars. And then he was asked, about, which we thought was a very interesting exchange and maybe is part of the problem. He was asked if the peer review process gets to the truth. There was a, big, a lot of talk about the peer review process. Just listen to his answer. This is Patrick Coyne, uh, man's counsel, asking his co-author, Bradley, if he thought the peer review process gets to the truth. Let's, let's hear that exchange reenacted by actors. Does it work, the process of peer review? Yes, I think it's pretty effective. There are obviously some papers that slip through. It's not perfect. But in general, the papers are improved. Let's say by the reviewing process. And Does it also get to the truth? Truth is a funny word. What happens is you publish your the results of your research, and if it stands the test of time, that is, if other studies confirm or reproduce what you've done, then eventually that knowledge that you've presented becomes part of the scientific foundation. I would say, can I go on and elaborate? I'm not so sure, Alan. That the truth is a funny word. No, I don't think the truth is a funny word at all. And I think it's a really weird thing for, um, particularly scientists. particularly for an academic, actually, to say that and for a scientist uh, to yes. say that. I mean, uh, is, the, boiling is, point, the boiling point of water, you know, isn't a debatable point. You know, the, you know, the, there are laws of physics that are not debatable. Um, so there, there are... There, are, there is a, there is truth and there is untruth and there are things that are not true at all and so actually with if anything it's actually not it's the very opposite truth is the very opposite of a funny word it's a very very serious word yes um, because it means an awful lot and if you tell somebody that something is true you know you and and particularly somebody who's very credentialed to be going around talking about truth and particularly then to, to I don't know say it's funny it isn't funny at all no no. So then they moved on to, I suppose they wanted to, you know, the the the, the reverse jacuzzi moment, you know. Coyne asked Bradley multiple times if there was any fraud, misconduct or manipulation of the data in the hockey stick graph. And he answered, let's hear his answer every time. We can hear that reenactment now, this very hurrah moment. So let's, let's do that. Professor Bradley, are you aware of any wrongdoing in the preparation of the MBH 98 and 99? There was no wrongdoing. Are you aware of any deception? No deception. Are you aware of any data manipulation of any kind in connection to those reports? No. Are you aware of any academic misconduct in the preparation of MBH 98 and 99? There was no academic misconduct. Are you aware of scientific misconduct in the preparation of those two papers? No. Are you aware of academic fraud in the preparation of those papers? No. Are you aware of scientific fraud in the preparations of those papers? There was no fraud at all. So yeah, that that was the that was kind of the the strong bit, you know. But um, then we got to the 
Oh, this is so interesting. This next section is so interesting. Because, yeah. you know, we, we definitely have it very well established today that Bradley is a major friend of Michael Mann's. Now, of course, Michael Mann ca calls him a professional friend. But, you know, I mean, huge friendship over decades. They've worked together, um, him and Hugh and the other yeah. guy, Hughes, right? Phil? Yeah. Hughes is the third well, name. I mean, they published two papers together. As he said, we published papers in 98. That means we started doing the research in 96. So, decades. So, this is, so, so, so basically, by way of introduction to this next section, what we're saying here is that Bradley knew this guy really, really well. And now we get to hear what Bradley thinks of man um, when in, in emails when he doesn't think anyone is looking. Yes. And for those of you who maybe clocked the um, what seemed like a very rude uh, title to this particular episode, yes. it'll all get explained now. So, yeah. So man is suing. Let's not forget. Man is suing because he claims his reputation was damaged by Stein and Simberg's articles in in the CEI and uh, and National, National Review. Um, but Bradley was then asked by Rand Simberg's lawyer, Mark Delaquille, you know, does he think man has a reputation and, and could any reputational damage be man's own fault, perhaps? So Bradley, and it comes out in the emails, Bradley knew man has a history of being pugnacious, litigious, bad-tempered, uh, with anyone, basically, who's, who it seemed did not completely agree with them. So Della Quill brought up this email exchange where Bradley admonished Mann and his take-no-prisoners approach uh, that left a trail of scorched earth. So let's go to that reenactment. This is uh, Ransenberg's lawyer, Mark Della Quill, uh, questioning Bradley, Professor Bradley, uh, and these are actors playing two characters. And at times, you cautioned Dr. Mann that his own actions were harming his reputation in the climate science community. Isn't that right? I believe on one occasion, I cautioned him to be more careful about how he corresponded with the editor of a magazine. I think that was what that context was, simply because he was a young guy, and at the time, nobody knew who he was, and he needed to be careful how his reputation was perceived. And that's because the way he was speaking to the that the editor could influence his reputation in a negative manner, right? Uh, yes, it was a little brash. It was poorly worded. And I suggested he should be careful about how he words his emails. I believe your words to Dr. Mann were he left a trail of scorched earth from nature to science and now GRL. Is that right? Is that what I wrote in my book? Is that what you're telling me? I believe you wrote that in an email. Would you like to see it, Dr. Bradley? Yes, I would. Please pull out Exhibit 531, the first email at, so we can blow it up larger and the jury can see it. Thank you. Here we have an email from Michael Mann to you dated April 4th, 2002. Is that right? Yes. You can see that's part of a larger chain of emails. Do you see that? Yes. Go to the bottom email on this page. This is an email you wrote to Dr. Mann, isn't it? Yes. 24 years ago or something, 22 years ago. It says, Mike, it does seem that the reviews were not very reasonable but I really don't think you do us any good by sending these angry, vitriolic emails. We've had these conversations many times before, but it doesn't seem to have made much difference to the way you react. You have left a trail of scorched earth from nature to science and now to GRL. I honestly and sincerely think this is not doing your reputation any good at all. And in the end, all you have is your reputation. So take care of it. Did I read that correctly, Dr. Bradley? You did. Is scorched earth another poetic license? Yes, that's a good one. And it's a fair one to describe the angry and vitriolic emails that the plaintiff was sending, right? 
Yes, I would say that was a nice way of characterizing it. So this next section is, is extraordinary, and I had referred to it a little bit earlier, um, and particularly given the what might seem to you a very intemperate uh, title for this t- today's episode, but actually you'll now understand it, and it's only a quote what I what I decided to have as the, as the title today. So Bradley, um, who again, as we said, is a very dear friend of Michael Mann, sent another scientist, a different scientist, an email referring to Michael Mann with the subject line, Vomit. It seems he couldn't even stand man at times himself. Bradley tried to pass it off as, you know, because the other guy he wrote to, who no longer is with us, by the way, um, uh, Liverpudley and another Liverpudley. And another John Briffow, wasn't it? From, I can't remember the name, another man, fr- a scientist from Liverpool. Um, and so Bradley tried to downplay this mm-hmm. as being a s- couple of people chatting and having a bit of fun, you know. However, they're talking about the great Michael Mann. And and also in this email is the line, excuse me while I puke. Exactly. Right? Which is the title of, of, so of the episode as well. So let's hear, let's hear it from Raymond Bradley himself, Dr. Raymond Bradley, sorry, uh, himself. Uh, here he is being cross-examined by Mark Stein, uh, the defendant who is representing himself. So take it away. And you also wrote, well, the... Do you recall we've talked about Keith Briffer? His name came up earlier. I take it he was a friend, no longer with us. But you send him an email with a subject header, Vomit. Do you recall? Yes. As you recall the subject header, do you recall the body of the email? I don't remember what I wrote. Maybe there was nothing in the email. I don't remember. You actually wrote in the body of the email... Excuse me while I puke. Do you recall it now? Just elaborating upon that comment, yes. It was an extension. The theme of the, yes, projectile extension was the theme of the header. That was in connection with more behavior by Mr. Mann, was it not? It was in connection with an email, a couple of emails, as I recall. We've heard today you've been in the field of climate science 40 years or so. 50. In that time, how many communications have you sent saying of fellow scientists, excuse me while I puke? I don't keep track of that. It's quite possible there are others. You have to understand, Mr. Stein, Keith Briffa and I come from the Liverpool area. We know we correspond in brief exchanges, often insults, exchange insults and sarcasm. And so it doesn't require very many words to convey what we mean. We understand each other. It's just like lingo. So, this is just two scousers. I'm still interested if at this time you can tell us, even among your scouser pals, a chap from Liverpool, among your fellow Liverpudlians, Keith or anybody else, you can recall saying this about any other scientist. I can't recall. Okay. It's possible. Yeah, well, earlier we talked about, uh, we, we showed Mark Stein's poor opinion of man and his fake Nobel Prize. Uh, Stein wasted no opportunity in asking Raymond Bradley, man's co-author uh, and fellow scientist, what he thought about man fakely claiming to have a Nobel Prize um, and got him to admit that he wouldn't do what man did. So let's have that exchange reenacted. This is Mark Stein questioning Professor Raymond Bradley about the stolen valor in the scientific world. 
Do you therefore regard yourself, as your friend Mr. Mann does, as a, quote, Nobel Prize recipient? I was hoping you would ask me that question. First of all, I don't believe Dr. Mann holds that view any more than I do. The Nobel Peace Prize was awarded to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Of course, we were members of that panel, so in that sense, we are co-recipients of the Nobel Prize as members of the panel, along with 5,000 other people who received, who were contributing to that. I could give you another example, if you would allow me. There will be a film displayed at the Oscars called Canary. And in the fine print at the end of the film, it's been nominated for an Oscar in the documentary class. You'll find acknowledgments to Ray Bradley. Now, if it receives an Oscar, I could hardly claim to have received an Oscar for my work. But if somebody writes to the Academy and says, did Ray Bradley receive an Oscar? They would write back and say, no, of course he didn't. And the headline will appear in the blogosphere. I guarantee Academy declares Ray Bradley didn't receive an Oscar, even though Ray Bradley never said he received an Oscar. That's exactly what happened with the business about the Nobel Prize. I'm often introduced by lecturers. People introduce me, Ray Bradley, recipient of Nobel Prize. And I roll my eyes because, of course, it's not the case. There's a difference. I'm happy to stipulate. There's a difference, I'm happy to stipulate. If you do win an Oscar for this film, that you'll be the Meryl Streep of climate science. <laughs> I don't think I would accept that. So Stein then asked Bradley if he knew about Michael Mann suing the Canadian scientist Tim Ball. So I think I should explain just who Tim Ball was. As, as we say, he's a Canadian scientist. And, and I suppose we should explain what that case was about. Again, Tim Ball said something uh, mildly insulting about man. And he made his, a joke, according to Stein. Yes, mildly insulting joke uh, uh, about Michael Mann's uh, research. And uh, Mann sued him and again kept him in court for the better part of a decade. And uh, uh, when he was supposed to come to court, did not turn up. Right? Michael Mann did not. Turn Michael up. Mann did not turn up, and the rule in Canada and the UK and all these other places is that if you pull out of the court case, you have to pay the expenses of the other party. It's to stop frivolous and vexatious lawsuits. It's to stop lawfare. Mann has yet to pay that bill. And unfortunately, we got to hear today that Tim Ball, in fact, died. And, and died. that died in penury. And that, in fact, his... his and it, I thought this was very shocking. Let and I know they asked, they, asked, they asked to strike it from the record. So but I let, let's let Stein tell it uh, as, as the way it was said in court. And uh, you'll, hear, you'll hear about how the sad way that Tim Ball ended up. Well, let me ask you this. Why did you choose Tim Ball to write the chapter on Hudson Bay? Is it because he was a perfectly respectable climate scientist? My recollection is Tim Ball did his PhD on an analysis of historical records from Hudson Bay, from the Hudson Bay forts. I believe this chapter in our book was an outgrowth of his doctoral thesis at the time, and this is back in the early 1990s, I believe. Did you know that your friend, Mr. Mann, had sued Tim Ball in British Columbia? No. 
Did you know that he sued him over a joke Tim Ball had made about Mr. Man? As I said, I didn't know. Do you know, as a result of that litigation, he died penniless and had to have his funeral crowdfunded? Objection. Sustained. Jury, please disregard the question. Well, Stang got it in at the end. I don't know how much this, you know, the judge saying, you know, disregard the question. I don't know how much that, how much influence that has on a jury, especially something where it's about a man vexatiously suing someone. And, uh, and where it sounds awfully, well, sorry, for, for, the, for, for, the, for the jury sitting there, it must have felt very, very like history was repeating itself yes. because they were looking at Mark Stein, who now is in a wheelchair, who was not in a wheelchair 12 years ago That's when right. this all started. Mm-hmm. And one has to wonder, you know, is, and I know Mark Stein has made that point himself that basically they're trying to kill, you know, they're trying to kill him before this thing gets settled. Yeah. Um, and then we had, I think we're ready to go on to the last. Then so we I come think, to your favourite witness, Anne, of the day, I think. Dr. Naomi Oreski, I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly. Um, she was kind of our favorite witness of the day in, in a funny way because she almost said absolutely nothing. And um, it was really a, 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 a testimony that said very little, but was involved enormous name dropping and, uh, and lecturing the jury. I'm not sure the jury really appreciated her or actually, I don't think she had much to say. That was the... That was the uh, the point. That was the problem with her evidence. So tell us who she was, Anne. So she's a, hi- a science historian um, mm. and a great friend of Michael Mann's, and we got that established. And she, as Phelan said, she did an enormous amount of name dropping. So basically, there isn't a college in the world that she hasn't been to. She started out in ha- in Brown. She's landed eventually landed in Harvard by way of the University of London, UC San Diego, and all kinds of other places that I can't remember the names of. But it was a lot of names, names, names. If any of you remember the wonderful com- comic show in the UK, uh, absolutely fabulous. She felt a little bit to me like names, names, Darling, 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 names, names, places, names, darling. Including, by the way, that she dropped in the fact that she had just landed literally in just this day in from Davos, yes. which I thought was delightful, by the way. And she t- explained that she's constantly on the road, constantly being asked to give lectures and was in, you know, North Dakota. And I was funny, actually, because I was thinking, you know, she gave an awful, she gives an enormous amount of lectures um, about her specialist area, which is kind of, I think, her sort of specialist areas. As Phelan said, she's a she's a climate historian. S- science historian. A, si- a science historian. Um, and she, you know... Um, you know, she travels the whole country. As I said, she had, she had also... She but just back from Davos, but she just before Davos, she was in North Dakota, she said. She was in Fargo and she was in Bismarck. And I was thinking, you know, cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. And the reason I actually thought that, by the way, which is kind of funny, was at one point, you know, they pointed out... Um, it was pointed out that uh, that she uh, was a dear... You know, a very close friend of Michael Mann's. And in fact, Michael Mann had actually stayed in her house. And she had then, by way of explaining that, she said, well, I have a very big house and I'm very generous. I bet you now, she house. never invited me over, by the way. But, uh, Anne, excuse me, I don't think you're uh, treating Miss Are- Professor... Doctor. Are- well, Dr. Oreskes, with the respect she deserves, as she told the court in her lengthy explanation of how qualified she was, she has eight honorary degrees. And I want to tell you, Anne McElhenney, what she said an honorary degree was. An honorary By the way, and before you even say that, Phelan, the minute she said honorary degree, I was ready to jump up and say, ha, excuse me, uh, go on, Phelan, tell us what she said an honorary degree was. An honorary degree... By the way, these people think no one watches the news, right? (laughs) An honorary degree... I have something to say about that, by the way. Go on. An honorary degree is an honour you get from a university. This is what she said. That's correct. 
Each year, universities around the world give out honorary degrees to people they believe represent the highest standards of academic accomplishment or who are models of what scholarship should, should be. be. She has eight of those honours, Anne. And, uh, you know, I don't think that... I was showing enough respect. Yes. Yeah, I was ready to jump up and down in the, in the court because... These these um these honorary degrees are handed out like candy in from the best universities in the world. Robert Mugabe, um, who people will remember fondly, Zimbabwe's dictator, um, ter- mass murderer, mass murderer, torturer in chief, got dozens of them from including from Massachusetts and from Michigan State. Um, Danny Minogue, ah, Danny Minogue got an honorary doctorate, by the way. Yes. Taylor Swift got an honorary degree from NYU. And Kermit the Frog got an honorary degree from Long Island University. And Phelan, tell me about Jimmy Savile. Well, um, for our American readers, Jimmy Savile uh, was a radio personality and charity fundraiser. In the and, UK. And prodigious paedophile. And he got one uh, in the United Kingdom from the Southampton University, a prestigious university. A very university. prestigious school. So, but just going on with, going on to back to Dr. Rureski, but anyway, that was very funny because she went, she made a big deal about the fact that she's got these honorary degrees. Well, uh, can I just say, it's not just that she made a big deal. She actually lied there. And, and, and it's funny, she treated the, the, the jury like they were idiots. I mean, every year on the news, there's a controversial, there's always a controversial story about someone getting awarded an honorary degree. It's a big story, right? Everyone knows they're handed out to, to funders. Like Hillary Clinton was just given one by Queen's University, Belfast. You know, it's, it's, it's um, people know that they're not, uh, to quote Dr. Oreskes, you know, given to people who reach the highest standards of academic accomplishment. They're, celebra- they're given to celebrities more than often. Yes, yes. So, Anyway, she went on to tell us more about how fabulous she is. And it really was, you know, like a dialogue from absolutely fabulous, kind of extraordinary, you know. So she went on to explain to us that one of her books had been translated into 10 languages. Magnificent, by the way. And then she talked, and I just thought this was very funny, that she had a TED Talk. You know that she has a TED Talk. 1.6 million views for her TED Talk, which, by the way, by TED Talk standards, I don't think 1.6 million views is huge. Then she went into the fact that she has a ton of prizes. Basically, she's won all the prizes. She didn't win the Nobel prize no. i will mention that and the time magazine has called her one of the top climate scientists in the world by the way um she addressed i think the, you know again i i think she was a bit of a nothing burger and that's why we didn't really um you know we're not really dwelling on her she was brought there to speak basically on these two issues of um peer y- review of the peer review process and the scientific method and you know and she wasn't in fact it was very much a thing that was highlighted that she was not to speak to any of the details of any of the specifics of the hockey stick uh, research or anything. Yes. She had to speak about the method in general. Um, I think it was very significant that Rand Simberg's the cross-examination by Rand Simberg's counsel, uh, Mark Delacroix, was very brief. And Mark Stein did not ask her a single question. I mean, I think Mark could have brought up Kermit the Frog and, and really... Uh, eviscerated her but I, I think, think he could have brought up more than that as well by the way because I mean uh, but I think it was the problem was that actually cross-examining her would have been kind of a distraction and it would have been away from, yes. the, by the, from the point she talked to the jury by the way like they were children in a school I used to be a teacher myself so I know exactly what that looks like and she did this kind of she was trying to be very charming she talked very very quickly a problem I have myself and then laughed it off and said to the jury and she also addressed the jury she really looked at the jury in a way that um, witnesses so far haven't quite done um, and she 
said that she talks very quickly because it was a technique she had learned to try and keep students awake. She came across to me as very arrogant. At one point, she was asked about, um, you know, journals that, you know, that she might have read. And she said, you know, like, you know and, and she said she mentioned like two. And then she said, I won't mention some of these journals. Uh, they wouldn't mean much to the people here. And I, I thought, oh, listen, don't be presuming anything about the people that this you're speaking to. This is a jury in D.C. like. You yeah, know? you have yeah. no idea who you're talking to. And I just I didn't like that tone, I have to say. But yeah. there was one more thing I just wanted to say um, about her. And I thought it was a thing that, you know, again, it, 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 it would have been a distraction. However... One of the things that she was is famous for that her book her her book basically is you know apparently she wrote a book should we trust the science and her answer of course is we should trust the science and the answer and the and they were and she was asked on the stand you know well why and she said because scientists have been proven right because science has stood the test of time mm. and I was just sort of sitting there thinking and sure what do I know you know but I was thought about thalidomide came to mind where people believed the science to an obviously a horrific, um, horrific uh, results because of that. I mean, what about ulcers? I mean, one lone rogue scientist in Australia said, this is caused by bacteria. It's not caused by stress. He was laughed. He was ridiculed. I, I listened to a documentary recently about it. His wife was, was ridiculed by the wives of other scientists. And now it's accepted that that. Ulcers are caused by bacteria and you just take antibiotics and that cures your ulcer. I would have loved to have mentioned eugenics, which every scientist on the planet Earth thought was magnificent and a wonderful idea. And they thought it was such a wonderful idea that it was done to people, God help them, all over the United States of America. And this is not ancient history. So the idea that science has been has proven the test of time and, and scientists have always been proven right. No, actually most scientists, I would say, have been proven wrong. Yeah, you know. and fat was bad, and then fat wasn't bad. Yeah. So yeah, so it's, you know this idea of science, settled science. But we're going to hear a lot more about science, even though we're meant, we're not meant to be hearing a lot more about science. We've come to the end of this particular yeah. days, uh, and we're glad to be getting to the end of the day. These days are long for us because we start in the morning, and then we record until well, it's late enough now here. Uh, we really want to stop for a second at the end now and say thank you, thank you, thank you. We broke through the top ten podcasts in the science section in all worldwide over the weekend. We were number seven at one point in science podcasts worldwide, which is huge. And your reviews are really, really helpful. And your ratings are really, really helpful. And please keep them coming. We would also, I would also like to add, we are a 501c3. We are dependent on charitable donations. And some of you have been giving those. And we are very grateful. We are going to be here for quite some time. This case is not going to end until um, around the 7th of February. At least. So, um, as so you can please. imagine... Give what you can. Uh, if you like our journalism, if you like these reenactments, we, we'll do a lot more of them and uh, we're enjoying it. Uh, it's great to tell the truth, uh, even though uh, certain scientists don't seem to believe that there is such a thing as truth. So We don't think the truth is funny at all. No. Join us uh, tomorrow for our podcast, uh, Climate Change on Trial. Don't forget to rate and review it and let's make it the number one science podcast in the world. Thank you and good night. Bye. Bye. Climate Change on Trial is a project of the Unreported Story Society. It's presented by Phelan McAleer and Anne McElhaney. Written by Anne McElhaney, Phelan McAleer, and Virginia Abram. The executive assistant was Annalisa Pesek. It's edited by Peter Kelly and produced by Phelan McAleer, Anne McElhaney, and Magdalena Segeda. Reenactments were directed by Kif Scholl. Nico Garfolo is the engineer. Mark Stein was played by Tom Bromhead. 
Judge Alfred S. Irving was played by Michael Shepard. John B. Williams was played by Keith Allen. Mark Delaquille was played by Matt Downs. Raymond S. Bradley was played by Gary Geidinger. Patrick Coyne was played by Trevor Lesur. The court reporter was played by Tina Van Berkelaar. And the attorney was played by Kiff Scholl.